We've been working through Matthew's Gospel, slowly but uh, enjoying every step of the way. And today we come to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Today's reading is from chapter 7, verses 21 through to 29. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. As we take a look at the conclusion of this sermon, we are at the end of it, and context is important, and I'm not going to re-preach the last seven chapters, but I do want to make sure that we are being very thoughtful about how we got here. And repeatedly I've been saying over the last number of weeks that Jesus keeps showing two ways to go through life. Two ways to relate to God. Two ways to relate to prayer. We can love God or try and leverage God. Two ways to relate to our finances and generosity and the poor. We can see money as something that, is, that God has blessed us with uh, all that we have. And so we can therefore be liberal and generous because our life is in his hands. Or we orbit our life around the material and wealth. And there's two ways of sort of approaching everything. Two ways of approaching uh, um, Fasting and spiritual disciplines, two ways of approaching justice and mercy, two ways of, of, of thinking about the poor and our responsibility towards the poor, two ways of thinking about how to relate to those who don't share our convictions in our faith. And now we get to the very end and we're presented with two paths, two ways of life, two foundations to build our life upon, the rock or, or the sand. So this morning, I want us to consider a few things from this passage that I hope will encourage us and provoke us and uh, reorient us and um, be a blessing. The first thing is I want us to think about the basis for the foundation. The basis, secondly, the evidence, and lastly, the implications. So first, let's consider the basis for this firm foundation. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Susan and I, or it was more than that, it was probably a couple months ago, Susan and I... Uh, went away for a couple days and we were uh, in this staying at, a, at an Airbnb and just relaxing and enjoying being completely unplugged and we were watching HGTV. Now I don't get HGTV because I only have a couple you know, uh, subscriptions and they don't give me HGTV and so I just couldn't stop watching this stuff. Every time I go away I love it. 
they're, they're building a house or smashing a house or love it or list it or flip it or flop it or smash it and blast it or whatever. I'll watch all of them, one after the next. I'm just like, hey, give me more. I don't have these kinds of skills and abilities. This just blows my mind that people can do this stuff to houses. And it's amazing, and we just can't get enough of it. We're watching this stuff, and uh, there's always every, every few episodes an episode where you know, they go – Come here, you got to see this, and they go outside, and the camera's all shaky as they do the Jason Bourne, and they run along the side of the house, and, and then inevitably there's a foundation problem, and there's like water spearing out or whatever, and they're like, oh no, this is going to be a big, huge problem, commercial break, every single time, right? And the thing with foundations is that they're critical, but they're also unseen. So you can have a gorgeous house that has the appearance of great beauty and stability, but in, react, in, in reality, uh, there's actually a major problem. And in this text, we're, we, are, we are provoked by Jesus with very strong warning language to consider the foundation through which we've built our life upon. And strong warnings are always received by the people of God. Uh, they can be received in two different ways. The warning can be received uh, in such a way that if we are cavalier and casual in our relationship with God, it wakes us up, which is an act of mercy. So God never gives warnings just to freak out his children and have them all run like chickens, you know, in a yard that are freaked out. It's, there's always a purpose behind it. And the one reaction can be it sobers up the church. It sobers up the slumbering people of God to be like, wow, wait a second. How have I become so casual about this uh, God of wonder and awe and majesty? The other reaction that the stark warnings can have is that for the people of God who are very much uh, loving him and have soft hearts... The same warning that is, can be terrifying for some is actually a tremendous encouragement to another. It is the same sun that hardens the clay and melts the wax. And so the word of God and the, the warnings of Jesus that come with such strong language can do this. So the basis for the firm foundation, let's begin here. The basis is knowing God. To know him... Um, the, the Greek word here is gnosko, which is, means like there's a very personal and close intimacy. That's what the word means. It can mean, you know, sort of relational, familial intimacy. It can mean like a friendship intimacy. It, it, depending on the context, it can mean a sexual intimacy. But it means that there's a closeness there. This is the basis for the foundation. And this is very important to know because if we don't read it that way, it's very easy to read this warning like... The only way to be okay with God is to make sure that your spiritual discipline game is, on, is up there. Because if it's not, you're not going to be okay. And the only way to get, get yourself from a position of not okay to okay is to do more. Now you're going to see in a second, the answer is not to do nothing. That would also be to fall in the other ditch. Right? But it's critical for us to know, when Jesus says, depart from me, I don't know you. He's saying, I don't gnosko. You. I, there's no intimacy here. It's actually the same word Mary used when the, she has a divine angelic encounter. And she says, how is this even possible? I don't know a man. I've never known a man. That's the same word. That level of like just intense close, closeness and intimacy. So the basis uh, for our firm foundation and the good news here is that we have a God who makes himself known. Right? He says, Jesus says, I don't know you. You know, our God is not trying to hide himself. 
Richard Dawkins, uh, in, in, in many respects, is a brilliant man, but then when it comes to speaking about God and faith, uh, he says things that are ill-advised. He's very passionate about it, but his sort of dislike and distaste and uh, you know, anger towards God, he somehow posits as the fact that he's uh, in such disagreement with the nature that of his understanding of the nature of God that that therefore disproves God because God is an, an angry ogre. But one of the things that Dawkins said in an interview when uh, the interviewer asked him and said, what would you do if at the end of your life you die, and you find yourself before God. And that there actually is a God, a creator of all things. What, what do you think your reaction might be to that? Or what do you think about that? And Dawkins barely paused a beat, and his response was, I would ask him why he went to such pains to hide himself. You see, when Jesus says, the only way for you to have your life on a firm foundation is to know me, the good news is our God is not hiding himself. Our God has stretched his existence across the, cos- across the cosmos and the sky and throughout all of nature to the smallest things that, that humans have ever discovered under a microscope to the largest, most grand things out in the cosmos. God has written the, the, the proof of his existence across nature. But not just only that, but because our God desire to be known he has come in Jesus Christ that for 2,000 years you could go anywhere in the world and take a stick and scratch a cross in the sand and everybody would be like yep we've heard of this our God is not trying to hide himself he has never tried to hide himself since the beginning of time we have been had a God who has desired very much to reveal himself and to move towards his beloved creation Susan and I were watching a show the other day, and uh, the, uh, one of the characters in the show is a spiritual man, and not a Christian, but he was a spiritual man, and the other character says to him, because he made a reference to God, and the character says, well, I don't believe in God. And he turns to him, and he says, there is no believing in God. God is. You either know him or you don't know him. And Susan and I sat there and thought, wow, wow, that sounds quite a bit like Romans chapter 1. But it was just amazing uh, to sit to think that the God of the cosmos is not hiding himself. He, is, he has made himself known. He has moved relentlessly towards humanity that he would be known. His love, his grace, his mercy. But the, the meta-narrative of scripture, and I say this all the time, is that exile and homecoming. And we live in this difficult in-between period before the restoration of all things, which comes with the resurrection, or sorry, with the return of Jesus Christ. The promise, of course, being a bodily resurrection, that Jesus wasn't a phantasm. So in the Christian faith... The, real, the full realization of our faith is not the doing away of the material, but the restoring of the material of what God intended at the beginning. And so because this is true, God has been moving towards his creation, desiring to be known. And this is the basis for which uh, the foundation is firm. Jesus is definitely looking for a response to his sermon. You don't preach sermons and say, oh, just food for thought. Like you're looking for a response and Jesus wants a response. The question is, what is the response that he wants? And so he's clearly saying that obviously, it's so obvious that our life has to be built on him. The last verse says that they were astonished at his teaching. Some of this stuff is so overt and on the nose, they weren't astonished at it because it was some sort of mystic uh, you know, enigma that could not be grasped. 
The reason they were astonished at Jesus' teachings is he didn't use any footnotes. He didn't quote anybody else. At that time, if for any of your teaching to have any validity, you're standing on the shoulders of your rabbi or their rabbi, and you're, you're quoting and you're, you're giving an uh, interpretation of Scripture based on the theological work of, of many others. Jesus just says how it is with no apology and with no footnotes. And that's the authority that they're amazed by. That they're being called to be drawn in. And so the significance of, of Jesus speaking so strongly and, and saying that the, it is the knowing right at the beginning. I need to know you. Depart from me those who I don't know, but I need to know you. The, the significance of this um, helps us make sense of why he lists a number of things that seem to be quite significant that don't seem to matter in the end. Like prophecy and miracles and exorcisms. Right? Now I don't know about you. This has been a low exorcism week for me. Uh, If I'm honest, this year has been pretty slow. And so how could Jesus use this strong language of such like massively significant things? And they're all saying they did them in his name. And he's like, "I, I don't know you. This teaches us, of course... That at the core of salvation is his grace and not our works. Though the works are significant and important. Because right after he says that, in his next breath, he says, He who hears my words and does them is like the one building on the rock. So he's not confused. He's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. But it's, where's your trust? And you notice that they're saying, Lord, Lord, look at, all this, look at our resume. How can you not accept this? But none of us, of course, are saved by that. If you have friends who are Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or Baha'i, there's going to be a, if you ask them, your friends, uh, how do I garner the acceptance of God? How am I accepted by God? Uh, they, They will have various answers that are all going to have a common denominator. Our Muslim friends will say to us, you know, your good has to outweigh the bad. We, have, we do good things in life. We do bad things in life. Everybody sins. So we have to continue to do good things to outweigh the bad. So that in the end, the good works that we have done outweigh the terrible things we have done. And this satisfies Allah. Amongst other things, I'm quite obviously really simplifying this. But that is the kind of language that will come out when I've spoken with Muslims about uh, how are you accepted by Allah. This is the way the conversation goes. Right? There's, not a con- there's no discussion about grace and forgiveness. and that's not, That language is not in the Quran. I have a copy of the Quran. I've looked at various um, teachings in the Quran. I am not an expert in the Quran. But I will tell you with confidence that, that uh, the way in which you are accepted in that context is to make sure in the end your good outweighs the bad. If we have friends who are Hindu or Buddhist, they have different ideas. Clearly, obviously, pathways to enlightenment, the eightfold path of enlightenment of our Buddhist friends and these sorts of things, detachment and um, uh, forsaking the material in favor of things that are spiritual. But it, in the end, you know, Buddha, when he was on his deathbed, said something, it's, the translation is loose, but it's something to the effect of, uh, my dear monks, you must uh, seek for yourself, find for yourself uh, salvation. So, so I'm leaving with teachings, I'm leaving you with manner of life. But in the end, you're, you're doing it. You're, you are your own savior. 
Because it's you and your works that in the end are what have you absorbed up into the Brahman eventually, right? With our Hindu friends, it's going to be a different conversation, but it's going to end up like good outweighing the bad so that in reincarnation, the next iteration of yourself is more positive than this iteration of yourself. They all have every world religion, every one of them has some form of this. So in a stark contrast to how the world has always understood God or the gods, Jesus presents a God who is not hiding himself, who wants to be known, who has moved heaven and earth to make sure he is known and makes the knowing him the basis. That, see, we're at the end of the sermon, but if you remember back at the beginning of the sermon, how this all started, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What does that mean? Empty hands, bringing nothing to the equation, grace alone. Right? Poor in spirit and saying, Lord, Lord, but I did this and I did that and I did that and I did that. That's not poor in spirit. That's middle class in spirit. I got some contributions here. That's upper class in spirit. I'm doing pretty good. I think I should be accepted. Look at the life I'm living. Basis for the foundation, firm foundation, is knowing him. The second thing is the evidence of the foundation. So after we've got the basis of knowing him, what's the evidence that we actually do know him? What's the evidence that the foundation actually is firm? Well, true faith always manifests in imitation. The same grace that rescues us, it does reanimate us. And Jesus gives us a bit of an Easter egg here. It's an Easter egg in verse 24. I think he repeats it in 26, where he says, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does them. That's a Levitical Easter egg because the center of the law in Leviticus 18.5 says, the one who hears these things and does them shall be saved. Hear them and do them and you will live. At the center of the law was always do this and live. You find that language all through the Old Testament. Do this and live. So what is Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? As we've discussed in previous weeks, he is uh, clearly presenting himself as the greater Moses because he's come through uh, water, the waters of baptism, and then he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, but he succeeds in the wilderness where the people of God failed in the wilderness. And then after coming through water and through the wilderness, he is now on a hill delivering the law. And he's even using some of the Easter egg language of the law. Do this and live. But he's not just giving a third reading of the law. They've already had two readings. right? The first reading of the law, that that didn't go very well. So then they had the second reading in Deuteronomy, Deutero Namas, the second reading of the law, second law, this is not tryptonomos. This is not God. Jesus going, okay, one more time, guys. It's been, a lo- it's been millennia of you not getting it. But if you, if you get the sermon straight from the source, maybe now you'll keep the law and save yourself. Absolutely not. What's happening here is Jesus is going to present through the rest of his ministry, as we unpack Matthew all through 2023, that he is the rock. He is the foundation. He is the only one who's kept the Sermon on the Mount. This is now very intentionally to guide us, to lead us, that we are to be reformed and there should be a recalibration and a reanimation. So the evidence is the imitation. Yes, of course, you and I will fail at it, but it'll matter to us when we fail at it. We're not casual and cavalier about our sin like we don't care. We don't talk about grace like it's peanut butter. But just spread it on there, man. It doesn't really matter. Just cover it all up. Obey, don't obey, thank God for grace. That is absurd. That's ridiculous outworking of recognizing what we've been given. So grace is scandalous, yes, because it's free uh, for us, but costly to our Savior. So there is 
this desire then of the ones who have the firm foundation to begin to live this, uh, uh, live this out in a, in a very intentional way from freedom and from, uh, to borrow from Thomas Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection that our old appetites and desires are being expelled, uh, expulsed and then there's the new desires begin to be formed and begin to come and that begins to change the way in which we think and live and relate. The hearing and the doing of the law. Not because we're externally constantly referring to it, though that's good, but because internally we're developing an appetite for it, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That is union with Christ. This is what God has always wanted. This is what, through the power of His Spirit and His Word, He provides. And this is what we begin to look like, the hearing and the doing, the evidence of that firm foundation. And, there's no, there, and again, if you connect it to his, how this teaching began, the Lord, Lord, but look what I'm doing. The attitude is the heart. You can just see it begins to come alive to see that Jesus is describing people going through religious motions. They're checking all the right boxes, but they're, they're, there's no love there. Be like you come home or, or for those of you uh, who've, uh, who've never had children, you know, just to use your imagination, uh, you come home and there's a... The kitchen is spotless. Wow, this is surprising. There's a 10-year-old sitting at the table. And uh, they're sitting there. And they've, they've made a, a meal for you. And you walk in there. And you're saying, what is going on? It's not my birthday. I don't understand this. Oh, no, I just love you. I just thought I'd clean the kitchen and make you this meal. Wow, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. So, uh, Christmas is coming. You're like, oh, okay. All right. That's not love. That's leverage, right? And so Jesus very clearly gives us that the evidence of the firm foundation is that, oh yes, there's going to be good works, there's going to be obedience, there's going to be desire and a drive for holiness. But it's also going to come with the heart and, and uh, it's going to come with um, the very nature, uh, increasingly, of our God of grace. Let's move on to the final thing. The implications. The implications of living life from the firm foundation. Right? The evidence is, or sorry, the basis is knowing, the evidence is the imitation, and the implications is that there's this knowledge that death is not final, that because we know we are assured of new life, that propels good works in ministering the gospel in this life. The implications of living from a firm foundation have to do with recognizing what this storm is Jesus is talking about. This is a strong statement of warning, of judgment. And as I said, that could, judgment can be terrifying, but judgment is only terrifying for the, those who are guilty. Judgment is not terrifying for those who are awaiting deliverance. There's a court date coming, and you're guilty. You're dreading judgment day. But if there's a court date coming and you've suffered injustice, you're actually looking forward to Judgment Day because it's the wiping away of your tears. So you see, with every judgment, there's always deliverance. With every judgment, with every gavel drop, half the courtroom is rejoicing every time because finally the suffering is over. Or finally, justice has been served. Or finally, there can be closure. Or finally, right? And so Jesus is saying, there's, you know, there's implications for living life on this firm foundation. 
He talks about the storm coming and beating on the life that's built on the wrong foundation. And he's presenting himself as the foundation and anything else is sand. All other worldviews, all other options is sand. All other ideologies, philosophies, doesn't matter how smart we are, how wealthy we are, our ideas. I was at the University of Waterloo uh, this last week speaking to uh, a few student events. And at one of them, I forget now, I, I said, I was talking about the implications of this. Saying that even if you're the, big, the greatest world changer you know, even if you're the greatest world changer the world has ever seen, 10,000 years from now, maybe you'll be a footnote in a textbook. You know, maybe. So that you see there's a futility to sand. There's a futility to the life that is not founded on the one who's defeated death and rose from the grave. And if Christianity was founded on a missing body theory, then this isn't very exciting. Right? If we just believed in missing bodies and we're all crossing our fingers going, I hope my faith is true, then okay, I'll, then this is not that exciting. But if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection, whereby he presented himself to the women first, and then to the twelve, and then to five hundred, and then he appeared for forty days, the resurrected Jesus, turning the ancient world upside down, which is why Rome went berserk, and Christianity exploded through Rome and was not laughed out of Rome. Right? Which is why we've got the writings of Josephus and Tacitus in the second century. Tacitus is saying things like this uh, problem has risen again. They're talking about they're talking about this since he doesn't even want to name it, the resurrection. They're, they're, this, this has created another stir again. People are turning to believe in this worship, this Jesus. And all of a sudden, it's, it's the most significant thing to have our life uh, founded on Jesus Christ, the one who has defeated death. This storm is the judgment day, the judgment day. See, Jesus, if you look at the, his language, he says, on that day. So I know it's tempting to look at this text and say, what are the storms in my life? I have some storms in my life. You know, that is good and helpful. Seasons where that's appropriate. In fact, even pondering this text, it's appropriate as the second thing you ponder. <laughs> because actually, the significance of God being a source of peace and comfort and strength and resilience in all of the little storms in your life is when you sit in the gravity of the ultimate storm. You sit in the gravity of what God has done through Jesus Christ to save us from the ultimate storm. It is your confidence that you will be delivered, united to Christ by grace and faith alone, in the ultimate storm that gives you great confidence for all of the day-to-day storms. These become the, the issue, the implications of what it looks like to live our life when the future is secure. Jesus uses the, the poetry of wind blowing. And if you've ever been under difficulty for a long period of season where you just feel like you can't catch your breath, you can't get a break, nothing seems to change, be changing either in your body or the struggles in the mind or at work or in the culture or relationally with your family, the constant beating, the constant storm. We can think about it in that sense to say, where am I going to garner my strength and what am I going to grip, grip onto that's going to carry me through this? And we can think about it in that way, but that's a small way to think about it. What Jesus is actually getting at here is we are living in an age and it's an age of many storms to be sure. And God cares about those storms to be sure. We're living in an age, but there's an age to come. And 
in, as Matthew unpacks, Jesus is going to be talking about the age to come and the coming of his kingdom more than anybody in all of Scripture. And it is when we recalibrate ourselves to that eternal truth that actually garners tremendous confidence, humble confidence, but confidence for the day-to-day. Because we have already been saved from the flood of Judgment Day. And this Judgment Day, the judgment of God, we want to understand it appropriately and properly. God is not like Zeus, where he's just wringing his fist. He just can't wait to just... That's not the tone that we understand the nature of our God. In Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33, God says, this is directly from the the words uh, from the mouth of God, God says, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. So as the church, we never want to have an attitude like, ha ha ha. God looks upon us and smiles and he's so thoroughly disgusted with the rest of our city. What? How do you think you and I got here? There's only one kind of person, the person who needs grace. So before you and I here, what was God's disposition towards us? We were his enemies, but what does God do with his enemies? He's so formidable a foe, he's trying to save his enemies. What is God's disposition towards those who hate him? He's, from the beginning of time, been trying to woo and save all those who are trying to kill him. And so because this is true... We understand that the judgment of God can't even be talked about without the tears of God. That he's this loving father. And therefore this now shapes the way in which you and I go out and live as ministers in this city. With a tremendous sense of confidence and generosity and boldness. Because the firm foundation forges something in us. It forges that sort of character that we resemble the people at the beginning of Jesus' sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who are sensitive and have soft hearts. Blessed are the merciful, for they know they've received mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. You see, when we know that we have our, in, our life is in the hands of God, and he has already dealt with the ultimate storm, the kind of confidence that that forges in us to go into the city with humble confidence, to give a defense for the hope that we have, is tremendous. So that when things are breaking down in our life, or our body, or our mental health, or our relationships, and we find ourselves in those smaller storms, there's a recalibrating effect that happens that is profound and deep and rich and available because of our union with Christ. You know, I'm going to close uh, by saying this. We can have three responses to this. The religious response is, thanks for that, uh, Jesus. I'm already doing all of this. I'm good. Uh, That's the religious, that's the self-righteous response. The rebellious response is, I believe in grace, so the way I live doesn't matter. God's going to forgive me in the end. But if that's your attitude, there's no evidence that there's any joy of the foundation that you're built on. But the repentant response is, oh God, may I, may I build and live with this kind of confidence? Can I, can I confess uh, my, my need for you? Can I know you deeply? The way that we know him was last week's sermon. 
being like little children, constantly asking, constantly seeking, constantly knocking, knowing that he will never cease to open the door to those that he loves. So may we rest in this loving acceptance of God. May our hearts and minds be at peace as we build our lives on the rock, Jesus Christ. And may God strengthen us in every storm, mindful that we have already been delivered by the grace of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the ultimate storm. Amen. Let's pray.